HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Tuesday, 3 p.m., and you're listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Kirkell. And today's guest, I'm very happy to have Corn Hewitt. Um, I first met him, actually, at the Umami Fest uh, in, was that 2010 still? Yeah, it was yeah. pretty recently, yeah, a couple uh, months ago. Yeah, a couple months ago. Uh, time has conflated since then. Um, on a panel talking about art and food, pretty much, uh, which helps because that is the basis of this show, the intersections of thus, um, and found him fascinating. Uh, it was a Whitney Biennial show in 2008. It wasn't a biennial. It was just a normal, uh, oh, okay. it was a, just a show yeah, at the museum. A yeah. show at the Whitney in 2008 called uh, Seed Stage, where you could better explain it than I could. Um, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, <laughs> It was a it was a project that was a continuation of a series of projects that I've been doing. Um, it was the third in a series, and what it was was I built a freestanding uh, room within a room within the museum uh, on the first floor in the lobby gallery of the museum. Uh, it was the room was uh, had walls about ten feet high and four vertical apertures in each of the corners that people could peer through to the interior where I was working three days a week. Uh, for the entire day, producing a body of still-life photographs. Um, in the interior, it was sort of a mixture between a kitchen, a uh, laboratory, <laughs> and a um, and an art studio. Uh, you must Google his name to see the pictures of this space itself, because it is also a very cluttered uh, laboratory, kitchen, studio as well. Yeah, I really loaded it. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely use it to its max ability. Um, Spending three times a week uh, going through the process of using food as not only the product, not only the medium, um, but the end product of a lot of this art. Mm -hmm. um, going through cooking, going through manipulation of that cooking, uh, composting, photographing DK. Uh, t tell us a little bit more why you felt like you had to uh, bring this 
project to the Whitney and, you know, encapsulate and ensconce yourself uh, to produce this work? Well, I mean, I felt like I was very fortunate to have it at the Whitney. I mean, I had been, the two other projects that I'd done had been in smaller uh, places, one in a gallery and one in a studio space. But the um, the interest in, in using in using food um, or, or vegetal material uh, came out of an interest in still life, in the history of still life uh, photography and painting, and in a way of engaging the process of still life, um, of being present for the process of the making of a still life, and yeah. being both inside of a camera where people are viewing, uh, where I'm making these still lives publicly, but also inside of an image. So people would, I would be part of the still life, kind of like a insect on on a on a pair myself. Yeah, um, and people could watch, you know, the change in 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 the way that I was moving across the surface as well as the way that the food was rotting or decaying or growing. So, I mean, it's interesting that you do talk of those still lives, those alcoves, kind of, you know, very, well, they were Flanders-esque alcoves, um, vanitas, and it would show that ephemeral nature of food and its decay. But also during that period, I remember uh, a lot of paintings would also show the artist in reflection, actually being some of the first meta Mm -hmm. uh, paintings at that time. So was that also a direct riff that you were trying to replicate this idea of alcoves as well as create the meta artist within the space? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, it probably had some subconscious relationship to having seen a lot of still lifes and actually having an uh, awareness that it wasn't, it wasn't, the way that I came to actually being in the space of my work um, was through uh, making a body of still life photographs of food and other uh, materials that were in a state of very rapid change. I mean, I was really interested in these materials. And historically, they were used because they they demonstrated the fragility of life, the fertility of a moment yeah. of experience, um, and the kind of vanity of of our own of our own gestures in the world. Uh, but I think for me. The thing that I became really interested in when I was when I was working making these photographs, instead of authoring this uh, these scenes, I actually wanted to be a part of them yeah. at the same time um, to assert my my own passing with the material. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it definitely helps that we have a lot of. Uh you know, reality television this day, uh, today that people understand the process behind the process, you know, the behind the scenes thing. But what makes what you did less fleeting than maybe, a, you know, a sitcom or series or reality show? What's the permanence? I mean, was it just the prints? Well, I mean, the purpose, the whole purpose of the of the exhibition was to produce a, uh, a body of photographs. And, yeah. you know, and for me, those photographs, the, the measure of those photographs is, is beauty, very simply. Um, so I am trying to you know, uh, produce images that to me capture what I feel is beautiful, which is a very complex relationships between systems. Yeah. Um, and that's my perception of beauty. So I just wanted to extend the process and struggle within that, uh, within that conversation and open it up. Yeah. And what, what were your kind of stipulations, uh, to consider something a finished photograph, consider it beautiful? Um, well, I think that, you know, that becomes super, super hard to articulate when something reaches a point of beauty for me because part of it is it part of what makes a beautiful art object is it isn't it hasn't actually realized its its end yeah so there's a feeling of potential in something that's beautiful so it's kinetic it's not yeah yeah it feels in a state of formation yeah. still um for me things that are actually fully formed uh start to be on the end of they start to turn into a vanishing point yeah. and they're dead ends you know whereas whereas images that that I can imagine stepping into and continuing to work with. There's nothing more exciting than seeing a painting that I that I wish that I was there at yeah. those moments of making it. So, I mean, does it help that you're using 
you know, non-inanimate objects, uh, things that actually have shelf life to them, to, you know, that don't stop the process, that have a, a life past, you know, you photographing them or you hanging them or putting them in a book. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, for me, then, then it becomes a, a struggle in time, too, that I'm, that it's not, an, I can't, I can't uh, sort of diddle, as, as I sort of diddle around yeah. and um, fumble with these materials trying to arrange something, they're changing. So the, what I could have done five minutes ago is no longer possible. So you know? it, it directly equates kind of to a chef in the kitchen. Um, and I was reading some prior articles that people had written about your exhibition. Uh, one of them referencing Bruce Nauman, a very lauded, you know, artist, um, and his exploration of space of studio and what that means to an artist and how the artist, uh, um, you know, either overtly shows himself within the studio or just shows the takeaways of the studio. And I also thought that was a very interesting parallel to a chef, the front of the house, back of the house. Um, why is it you felt like you had to be contained within a space and why did you have these little, you know, slits at the corners, um, that people can only peer into very slightly. And, you know, what was the intention of them being there? Why weren't there windows? Why weren't there people transporting the work outside? Right. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to keep it in the realm of... There's this whole movement in art that uh, I think whether or not a number of artists were interested in being part of it, as often happens, people get grouped after the fact. Yeah. And there's this thing called relational aesthetics that happened, uh, you know, starting maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and where the art became about the relationship, a uh, living relationship between the audience and the maker and its formation. And for me, I was really interested in keeping the work out of that and keeping it into the realm of the visual. Yeah. So although I, I, was, I was sharing time with the audience, so there was a one-to-one relationship in time, and that when they were looking, I was acting. Uh, all of the time that they were there, I was there. You know, when yeah. they, I mean, when, when I was there. There was a period where I wasn't there. Um, but there was that conversation in time, but I wanted to keep it based on an image, like the way a photograph is. And I wanted to just basically animate the image in time. So, but the cutouts were like wide angle lenses Yeah, and it was a way of looking into a picture where you could, you know, cause it was a corner, you could see all, all sides of the room. Yeah. Um, another point that was brought up in prior articles was Roland Barthes, uh, who seemingly not just influenced this show, but, uh, greater part of your career and kind of the idea of the object versus making the object um i know i'm going to butcher this word but constructivism constructivism Uh, yeah yeah Uh, it's kind of the theory of knowledge or the theory of jumping into process and understanding that process and you know how to be able to discuss that kind of what histrionics is to history Mm -hmm. um how did roland barth's camera lucida and all that influence this show specifically I wouldn't say he influenced the show specifically. Yeah. He's just somebody who's a really interesting thinker. Yeah, um, yeah but there's actually nothing. There was nothing directly from Barth's. I mean, Cameron Lucid is a great book, yeah. but I wouldn't say there's anything directly from that. I often feel like I'll read theory, and it becomes a. When I read it, it becomes just a exciting. It's almost like a fictional space to be in and be with, you know. But I, I aside from aside from maybe more recently where I've. I got really interested in these weird problems that Wittgenstein was coming up with with color theory in this project I'm doing now yeah. in Vermont. Uh, have I really directly used theory in any way? Yeah. E- even with having this object that you photograph that is within a state of not only uh, is it edible, um, but, you know, like you said, it's within a lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever think of presenting that directly to the museum itself and letting that decay outside of the walls? Um, I, was, I was really... I, 
Yeah, I was really interested in the image and the way that yeah. images, the way images can provide energy uh, to different generations in different times. So, you know, when you look at an image, a historical image, you are, you know, you're looking at a framing of a space that contained a lot around it. So that there's always the tension of what's right outside the border of a photograph. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was really interested in the process of photography and cool. ob- object making within that. Yeah. Process. So let's uh, talk about kind of in, in relation to food magazines mm-hmm. and to restaurants and how, you know, restaurants are reviewed and usually you see a picture of a chef or, you know, whatever dish they're trying to, you know, highlight at the time. What do you feel like is the difference in experience of seeing the photograph of that plate of dish or actually being in the restaurant having that dish? Yeah, I think it's... I was looking at a lot of uh, food photography early on when I started doing this work. Um, Anyone specific? No, well, I was actually looking at a lot of Russian food photography yeah. from the 1950s. <laughs> that was the that was what actually got me really interested because they were collaging dishes together and often repeating them. So they would take this uh, this one encyclopedia of Russian food that a friend, a good friend of mine, Alex Haberstadt, gave me um, uh, to look at. Had they would have one dish that they would photograph and then reproduce that a couple times and overlap it to make it look like a banquet. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so they also like the perspective and the, so it was all the same size yeah. in the visual field. Uh, and it was sort of seemingly reproducibility of this perfect dish, but it was actually the same oh, that's, dish. That's very, so, you know, taking the elements, I mean, that feels like true sustainable food photography. Right. <laughs> I mean, not wasting anything after you have certain elements and ingredients. Um, Oh no, that's 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 extremely. They're amazing. These yeah. books are worth looking at. They also have these backdrops that are like put on after the fact. You know, they're like collage. You have no idea if this is taken out of somebody's yeah. kitchen, if it was shot in the commissar's office, if it's shot in the toilet. You know, you don't know where these photographs are taken because they're collaged onto these monochromes. In the huh. So I mean, that takes out from the ephemeral nature of food, though. Once you know you have an object, then you don't you can repeat that object without right. actually showing. Um, but then. Back to eating in a restaurant, um, what is that experience to you in relation to then having produced uh, and seen all this food go through uh, time life? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think like when you I, – I don't – I haven't eaten in that many uh, high-end restaurants. I, you know, we, we, ate, we grew a lot of our own food growing up, and, and, uh, but I, so I know I'm very close to the aspects of cooking and production of food myself. But being in a restaurant, there's in – in some very fancy restaurants uh, – there's so much of an emphasis on plating yeah. and that's kind of the image presentation and obviously the image presentation of, of, of the food, but all of the, I'm always interested in like the, those moments where the plate gets wiped down yeah. or the little bits that get scraped off. Or those the, little processes. Yeah, those, those little edges where right before the plate comes out, there's this last poking and rearranging yeah. to either make it look kind of happenstance in its beauty or perfectly constructed. You know? Yeah. I think a lot of people are showing that process based and kinetic motion in food photographs these days and yeah. uh, have found that you know extremely exciting because everything else seems soft focus and stagnant right you know? and i guess i mean i'm sure somebody's talked about this but the history of food photography so closely mirrors the history of pornography yeah in terms of the way that the images have been taken the kind of soft lens vaseline focus of the 70s uh where you show some sort of backdrops and then the like the super super crisp cut down <laughs> shaved in 90s and yeah. then, and then now it's like something what gourmet seems to be doing recently is these kind of tabletop views kind of amateur shots yeah. you know and i think that those i mean pornography seems to 
parallel and often lead so much of culture. Uh, it is it. similar sensuality. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about real food porn okay. and uh, <laughs> Corin's roots in Vermont and his uh, newest project uh, being displayed in Burlington at the Firehouse Gallery. Uh, Michael Harlan Turkel, you're listening to the food scene. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel, and you're listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. Before I forget, I really wanted to thank our sponsor, TechServe, New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service producer, serving individual customers, creative professionals, and Fortune 100 companies. TechServe has built a solid reputation on its expertise in technology, sales, and service. As a company that believes in honest and forthright business practices, TechServe is proud to sponsor Heritage Radio Network and the promotion of sustainable lifestyles. We're going to go from technology back to the roots right now uh, and talk duly about two things because I do not want to uh, forget to come back to all the food porn we were just talking about. But Corn also grew up in Vermont and had stated priorly that he had grown a lot of his food. So there is a different kind of attachment to the work that he's doing. Um, seeing, you know, this timeline, this lifespan of, uh, you know, to decay, uh, even composting some of the food in seed stage, there's an, you know, inert and innate uh, understanding of you know the naturalistic sense of origin and food. And he's doing a project right now in Vermont. It's at the Firehouse Gallery. Yeah, it's at the Burlington City Arts. The town that I grew up in has a, a small a city arts gallery that they've uh, run, which is actually was. Partially started by my current uh, dealer in New York, Pascal Spangeman. Excellent. And um, the new project's called The Gray Flame and the Brown Light. And uh, I've read a couple times that it's sort of a prequel to Seed Stage. Could you explain how? Yeah, I was just interested in sort of thinking about origin and, and how we source the places that that we are from and where things are from. Um, and what a complex idea that is. And, you know, especially since origin and originality in art are such a major conversation, yeah. I kind of wanted to try to get at yeah. some of those problems. And it's also a very interesting time in food where heirloom and, you know, farm to table. Uh, so everything has its inherent roots. Uh, 
you know, within 100 miles, within, you know, a region. So it, it seemed like it was a very, you know, in tune with the food world at this time. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is so uh, interesting and, and sometimes problematic about nativeness and native cuisine and native plants is that uh, it's really a durational question, not a, not an origin question. So, uh, in other words, we, I taught a class this summer at the University of Vermont uh, about nativeness and landscape in relation to sculpture and photog- using sculpture and photography yeah. to think about nativeness and landscape, uh, sort of the point in time versus uh, the sort of continuum or the momentum of a point. You yeah, know, with being so very similar to the vanishing point and idea that you had uh, within seed stage. Yeah. And so, so one of the people that we met with uh, was one of my close friends from high school who's now the state lands ecologist in the state of Vermont. And he, we were talking about the nativeness of plants in the yeah. state of Vermont, which also has a lot to do with, you know, cuisine because of the vegetables and heirloom, as you were talking about. Um, you know, and he was saying that, well, they all, they all learn about native plants from a place and trying to preserve native plants from a certain place. But, of course, that nativeness... Is almost is, is almost always rooted in the European colonization of America, which he was saying was didn't necessarily radically change the ev- evolution of plant species any more radically than it was already being changed by yeah. the wide variety of populations there beforehand. So the idea that there was an original plants population to Vermont is kind of an absurd idea because there was you know the original Vermont was very early on a coral reef you know and yeah. we went up to this fossil bed and we saw the before there were even plants on the earth vermont was located where zimbabwe is now yeah um so there is there is no there what there's no fixed there is no, no fixed beginnings and just like cuisine too there's this progression um a lot of people trying to grow heirloom it's just a not just a cyclical thing it's a reintroduction into a new rather mm-hmm. than just a reintroduction a reintroduction into the old idea of thinking right. trying to incorporate into in a contemporary sense right and um, with your new show, what are you trying to do to kind of, you know, fight those battles and figure out, you know, origin, nativeness, and, you know, today? Well, I just, I came up with a kind of a machine. I was thinking about color as a way to deal with the problem of of beginnings. Um, and primarily because, you know, growing up in Vermont, uh, one thing that was very important to us was the soil uh, of our land. And we, we grew up, I mean, the land that my father, my parents purchased in the 60s, which was about um, an hour north of where six generations of his family had been before then um, in this area of the Piedmont of Vermont on the eastern uh, Connecticut River Valley. Uh, the, the land is not very fertile, naturally. It's actually quite poor farming land. Yeah. So um, we had to do a lot to condition the soil and removing a lot of field stones, which had already partially been done by a lot of the um, the sheep and then and then dairy farmers before. Anyway, so soil and the condition of soil and the types of browns within soil were really important to me. So when I was stumbling through this Wittgenstein uh, book on color, he's, he's, he comes up with this problem where he says, can you imagine a gray flame or a brown light? And because he thought of those colors as having no luminosity, that they have no energy within yeah. them, that grays and browns are dead colors. But to me, brown is a very vital color because it was the color of the soil, which would either allow things to grow or not to grow. Yeah, and it also is a majority of a lot of food and photographs that's really hard to photograph, uh, you know, proteins such as meats and, right. you know, potatoes, etc., which are very, you know, uh, native to Vermont. Yeah, and so I wanted to, I wanted to confront the idea of the fertility of brown and gray. And, and as a historical space, you know, that brown is a history of many, many generations of plant species dying, growing and dying in the same place. And soil builds, 
you know, builds after one plant grows, another one dies, another grows, another dies. And this becomes a potentially fertile mix for another generation. Yeah. So, um, so the scheme I came up with to, fer- to, to create vitality in grounds and braise is to, is to I built this large kind of extravagant, uh, overly, I won't get into it, but a color making <laughs> machine where I'm inside of it, uh, taking rock and soil and ash and all of these things from the soil of Vermont, scanning them on flatbed scanners, uh, compressing all the color in Photoshop down to one color, and then super saturating it to blow it back out to the exterior of the color sphere. Yeah. So I basically was figuring out a way to model the vitality of these colors, which seem degraded or degenerated. Yeah. Uh, It's really interesting because I remember going up to camp in the Catskills, uh, we take these rocks by the waterbeds and scrape them against each other to Mm -hmm. kind of create, um, you know, dyes in a sense or different colors. And, uh, but they were the grayest of gray and the, you know, brownest of brown stones. And then once you actually made friction between Uh those two reds, blues, greens would come out. And I, I even think, you know, like things like Lapis, Lapis Lazi and like a lot of color dyes and food dyes come from things that are just, you know, within that gray space, you know, within that brown and gray and kind of muddy and, but it, it's truly getting underneath the surface to see, you know, its true potential color and understanding. Um, yeah, there's this really fast. I don't know if you've read this book, but it's actually really, really fascinating. It may connect to this. This book called Synthetic Worlds by this uh, author, Esther Leslie. Um, and the book is basically talking about the synthetic, uh, synthetic color, development of synthetic color in Germany. Because Germany didn't have any colonies. So when England and France were importing all of these, uh, you know, red matter and indigo and all of these uh, chemicals for their for their um, all these natural natural dye materials for their cloth for their textile industry, Germany, since they didn't have any colonies, had to go out and start making synthetic color. But they found that coal contained uh, almost all, all of the uh, components for a full spectrum <laughs> of color, yeah. and they were able to get the most vibrant, most more intense colors out of coal. And then this, she gets into how that developed into fascism and yeah. all these really interesting things. But yeah, that the earth contains tremendous color, even in the most compressed spaces, is really uh, interesting. absolutely interesting. Um, I I don't want to, you know, have you leave without asking you some simpler questions. Uh-huh. Um, cuisine, food cultures, restaurant chefs. Do any of these influence your work or your ideas about food, soil, fertility? Um, where do you eat? What are your favorite things to eat? Is that, you know, a driving force? Um, I would say not, 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 not restaurants particularly. For years we would go, every year my mother would take me out to a, um, to a restaurant for my birthday. That was like her, her birthday yeah. gift for me for years. So, you know, we, I think four years ago we went to WD-50 and that was really interesting yeah. for me. Um, and that was previous to, to making this work. And I mean, to me, it was a very different way of thinking about it, but I thought it was, he, he uh, Willie DeFresne came out of the kitchen, brought us back there, which I think he does with a lot of people. And, um, you know, talked to me, I was cause I think cause I was so curious, yeah. talked to me a while about the processes that they're using. Um, and we went to Aquavit another year and, uh, Jean-Georges another year. But so these were more these heightened experiences but i miss one thing i miss about really really fine cuisine is seeing the process so yeah. i love nothing more than actually being in someone's home watching them make things as much to see how they use the tools as as toward what the result is yeah yeah so um it, yeah that that's 
similar to me, I've been doing this back of the house project, photographing for Edible Brooklyn, Edible Manhattan, to uh, photograph during service to actually see the processes play out because sometimes I'm more interested in that than the plated dish. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, then you understand that technique and you have that within your repertoire. Right. Um, do you use certain things that you maybe learned at WD-50 from hydrocolloids to et cetera within your seed stage, within, you know, implements of, you know, your newer projects? And I, I'm so, I was so low tech in that. Yeah. In that. I mean, it was kind of, I made this, uh, this composting program, uh, color composting program. That's the most high tech. My friend Sebrin Verstegen and I made a program where you could co- compost uh, photographs into yeah. the color elements. Yeah. Um, and make these uh, plaids that were composted color from photographs of food. So, and that was in seed stage. That was in seed stage. Yeah. So that was the most technical uh, thing, which wasn't, you know, directly... I mean, so maybe it's analogous to some of those sort of casting things. I was also casting leftovers and feed, and then cutting them on the bandsaw and feeding them through the worm bins because yeah. I was also processing the photographs through these worm bins. Yeah. And if the worms would eat out the leftovers and leave a negative yeah. uh, in the <laughs> cast as a way of, like, removing the yeah. object. Kind of like Swiss cheese, but yeah, not exactly. really. Yeah, yeah. 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 Instead of gas, it was the worms exactly. eating away. <laughs> yeah. So... I think that kind of just thinking about the playfulness of the space of a thing being flexible, you know, that you can that you can hold things in different forms or different periods. I think it was a spirit more than actually technology. Yeah. And uh, very rustic in your techniques, but at the same time, uh, very understood in your process. And I think that's where it equates with what Wiley's doing, too, that there's a basis in technique with him, but there's a basis in process and understanding and uh, kind of an endpoint, But, you know creativity in in yours um so do do you cook at home do you you know implement cuisine uh or yeah we do yeah we cook a lot at home i mean my um my wife uh my wife's a vegetarian and a wonderful vegetarian cook and i i you know i grew up being you know eating an omnivore i ate everything i still i still do when i'm not at home but she's actually really vitalized that and the access to really really good vegetables uh in the city which was something that's you know during my yeah. lifetime has changed tremendously so do you align yourself with any specific food movement like farm to table do you eat fast food um rarely i mean i actually first time i ate a sausage mcmuffin uh, three nights ago and i hadn't had anything from mcdonald's in probably five years and i was on the interstate and i had the most intense food poisoning yeah I actually thought that McDonald's couldn't, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible from there because of how processed that food is, yeah. <laughs> but I've never gotten sicker. So yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I eat well. I don't think of myself within, particularly with any distinct element of food culture. Uh, you know, we were members of the Park Slope Food Co-op for uh, last six years. And so we, you know, we, we eat well and we do care. I live pretty similar to the way I grew up, which yeah. was eating as close to the garden as possible. Yeah. Um, unfortunately we're running out of time and I did want to come back to the idea of food porn, but we may have to save that for another show. All right. Uh, I'd be happy to be there. <laughs> Definitely. Um, if you do not know corn's work, get on the internet, search it, see it. If you're up in Burlington, stop by and you're teaching down in Virginia. Um, what, what, Specifically, I'm teaching sculpture at um, Virginia Commonwealth University. They have a really interesting uh, sculpture program there. So, and then I'll be doing a show of sculpture this January uh, at Texter and Spangemann Gallery in New York and Excellent. Chelsea. So, when he comes back to New York, uh, you know, stop by and see corn, see the process. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be food to you know, kind of uh, fill you up. So uh, it's just 
wonderful work, and I really appreciate having you on. Um, this is Michael Harlan Terkel. You've been listening to The Food Scene thank on you. Heritage Radio Network. Just want to thank our producer, Jack Inslee, our engineer today, Dan Brindell, and uh, once again, Corn Hewitt. Thank you, Michael. Welcome, welcome. See you next Tuesday at 3 p.m. <laughs>